Take your copy of God's Word tonight and turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Appreciate you all coming back this morning. We appreciate Dr. Brewer being here and preaching for us. Uh, But as the pastor and when I don't preach, I kind of get restless. So that means I've come with double barrels tonight, all right? See, 622, we'll be out of here at the latest by 744 probably. No amens at all tonight when I said that. But uh, I do want to share with you a message tonight from Acts chapter 24. I want to talk to you about not waiting for a convenient time. You know, for all of us, well, maybe not all of us in this room, but a lot of us in this room, uh, we can very easily put things off. A lot of us. Amen or oh me. All right, wives, you can look at your husband if you need to tonight. It's fine. You can point fingers. You can do whatever. Because, you know, there are a lot of us. There are a lot of us. I can find myself constantly saying, well, you know what? I'll do that tomorrow. Or um, I'll take care of that this evening. Let me finish this first, and then I will do what you need me to do. I mean, I I often will refer or, or refer work in such ways. It's like, we'll do it later. It's kind of like the great theologian. Some of you remember him. Now, he's much older than most of you in this room, and many of you will not remember him. But there was a great theologian named Fred G. Sanford. You remember him? (laughs) Used to be on television years ago, right? And he he said something like, put off today what you can do tomorrow. And uh, I guess growing up and hearing the reruns of his show and hearing him say that, it just kind of had an impact on me. That's the reason I procrastinate. I blame it on Fred G. Sanford. But uh, a lot of us, we have ways of putting things off, things until it is more convenient for us. Tonight, I want to share with you about this individual. His name is Felix, who actually puts things off doesn't respond to God's message, but rather decides he'll wait for a convenient season. Now, I'm going to set the context for you as we look at chapter 24. I promise you these first few verses, I'm going to move through somewhat quickly so that we can get to his response. But the first few verses of chapter 24 give us the context, reminds us of what's going on. Those of you who've been here and you've been studying through the book of Acts with us, you've probably been been following this narrative. But just to remind us, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, after five days... Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, remember, Paul has been sent to Caesarea. He was in Jerusalem, but because of the mob, because of things that were going on with the Jewish nationalism, uh, the tribune was very concerned that Paul, that his life was in danger. So he sent him by night, if you remember, with all kinds of troops up to Caesarea to the procurator, to the one who is basically the governor of the region, Felix. There at Caesarea, they await. And it says that the high priest, Ananias, comes down five days later, and he brings with him this orator. Some of your translations will rightly say lawyer, Tertullus. It says, and when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity, is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague 
a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So again, the background. There's Paul in Caesarea. His accusers have come down. The high priest, Ananias, has come down. And he has brought with him, as I said, this orator or this lawyer, Tertullus. This lawyer could have been, well, he could have been Jewish himself. He could have been Gentile. A lot of times the Jews would hire a Gentile lawyer in order, someone that was more familiar with Roman law to be able to argue their case. And perhaps he had come down in such a manner to argue the case. And you can hear him present his accusations against Paul. Now, when he begins his speech, when he begins his list of charges, you will hear him use all types of flattery for Felix. I mean, if you're going to go in before a judge, you want to use the most flattering compliments you can, right? Like, judge, that black robe, it looks awesome on you. I mean, you just set it apart. Unlike any other judge that I've ever seen. And we appreciate you. You always rule justly. And that kind of, that's basically what you hear. You hear him going overboard here as this orator, as this lawyer that he is. It says, we enjoy a great peace. We enjoy prosperity because of you. You, you are, you're great. Everybody everywhere knows you and knows how wonderful you are. Now, what's interesting is Felix was not a good ruler. He had not brought peace. As a matter of fact, during his reign, you will find one of the most um, hostile environments in Judea. You would find insurrection after insurrection, rebellion after rebellion. Of course, we are building toward the climax, if you will. If you look at this time frame of history, you are building toward the climax where Rome will come and finally destroy Jerusalem and the temple itself because they are so tired of the insurrection and rebellion of the Jewish people. And Felix had contributed to that rebellion at this time. There had not been peace. There had not been prosperity. But Tertullus, this smart orator or lawyer who brings the charge against Paul, he, he begins to flatter the governor. He begins to uh, just compound uh, compliment after compliment for this man. And then he lays out his charges. Notice what he charges Paul with. He says in verse 5, he says, We have found this man a plague. Your translation may also say a pest. Paul is a pesty, pesky guy. I mean, he is a pest. He is a plague. He is trying to stir up things. He, he's always about dissension. And that's really what he begins to share with this ruler, he says, when he goes to the different Jews in the different parts of the world, he creates dissension. He's a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. In other words, he is trying to undermine our faith and our religion. He is trying to undermine everything that we stand for. He even tried to profane the temple. Now, again, if you've been here through this study, you know they bring these charges that, that Paul brought a Gentile in to a restricted area of the temple, a temple that was reserved only for the, uh, an area that was reserved only for the Jewish people. So he makes these charges 
once again. And the Jews who were there were assenting. The high priest, Ananias in particular. Now remember, Ananias was the individual that Paul had had appeared before earlier. And Paul had said there was coming a day. I didn't mention this a few weeks ago, but I wanted to just let you know that Ananias, while serving as a high priest, he was one of the most corrupt individuals you could find. He was very cozy with the Roman authorities. And within 10 years of this incident, he would actually be killed by the Jewish freedom fighters because of his corruption and because of his relationship with Rome. And yet here he is bringing charges against the apostle, bringing charges against the man of God. Notice verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult, They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them. Concerning the resurrection of the dead I am being judged by you this day. So Paul gives his defense. He gives his defense and he basically says they are wrong. I have not done these things. They cannot prove these things. It's amazing when you have truth on your side, isn't it? You know, people can bring accusations against you all day long. But there's some confidence you can have when you know the truth is on your side. You'll see accusations leveled against the church. You'll see accusations leveled against believers throughout our nation, throughout this world. But for us to be able to stand in the truth, knowing that we are innocent of those charges, makes all the difference in the world. And this is what Paul says. Paul says, I was only here 12 days. Why is that an important thing? Because Paul's kind of saying, I have not even had time to get an insurrection planned, a rebellion. You think in 12 days I could have brought together this great master plan to overthrow the Jewish authority and the Roman government? Do you think I could? I've just gotten here. 12 days that I've been here. And he says, I came actually trying to help. I came after all these years to help my nation. Remember the reason he had come back to Jerusalem, one of the reasons, was he was bringing an offering from the Gentile churches to help out during a time of famine. He was trying to help his brothers and sisters. 
And yet they have made such charges. He said, you call any of those forth and, and allow them to testify to see if they saw a Gentile in such a restricted area. He said, you do that. These people here, this lawyer, for example, he wasn't there. He didn't know what was going on. But you ought to bring the real witnesses and allow them to testify. He says, the only thing that I've been guilty of is preaching the resurrection. And that is what has caused so much issue among my Jewish brothers and sisters. Because I spoke about my belief in the resurrection itself. Now, verse 22, 21 verses in about 13 minutes. You proud of me? Hold on. We still got a long way to go. Verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So notice, Felix adjourns the proceedings. And what Dr. Luke tells us is that he knows something about Christianity. He knows something about the way. He actually, he's done his research here. He knows more than what they, the, the Jewish, Jewish accusers think he knows. He knows what they preach. He knows what they teach. These people of the way. Notice that is also the term that it was used by Paul in his defense. The way. The way. And Felix adjourns the proceedings. Perhaps he knows about the way because of Drusilla. Drusilla is Jewish. We'll be introduced to her a little bit later. And maybe she's told her husband about what's going on. Or maybe he's inquired from some other people. Somehow he knows a little bit about this Christ movement. He knows about the way. He says, I'm going to call the tribune. Let him come down and present the evidence, and I'm going to make a decision. So in verse 23, he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So here's Felix. He's heard a little bit about Christ. He's heard a little bit about the way. And it's like he wants to inquire more. He wants a private audience, not some court proceeding. He doesn't want to, He just wants a private audience. So he brings Paul back to tell him about Jesus, to tell him about the way. Isn't this amazing? how God can take some of the most difficult moments in our lives and he can use them as witnessing opportunities. I mean, Paul is there because there are charges against him. Paul is there because people are falsely accusing him of certain things that they believe violated their law and their tradition. He's been placed under house arrest with some freedom, yes, but he's been placed under house arrest. And yet, in the midst of all these events, 
he is able to testify of Jesus Christ to the ruler himself. I just, I love this about our God. That he can take any kind of opportunity, he can take any kind of event in our life, and he can redeem it for something that is good and glorious. Aren't you proud of that? I mean, we see it all through Scripture. The cross event itself, the cross itself is the primary example of that. The cross, which was meant to be evil, God redeemed for good. The cross, which was supposed to be a symbol of horror and tragedy, today is a symbol of life and salvation. Today we sing about the wondrous cross. New Testament day, for the Jewish people, the Roman people, they could not even imagine the wondrous cross. But today, we couldn't imagine life without the wondrous cross. That's the kind of God we serve. He takes this moment and he gives Paul a witnessing experience. He brings in this great, listen, Felix is allowed to hear the gospel from one of the greatest preachers that has ever lived. He brings Paul in to hear what Paul would say concerning the faith in Christ. You got to love it. When God puts in somebody's heart the question, hey, could you tell me more about Christ? You got to love God's movement and God's spirit. Well, the good preacher Paul, verse 25, he obliges Felix. Says, now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. I want you to see these three areas specifically. Says that he reasoned in righteousness. Righteousness, that which is ideal, that which uh, God has called us to experience. I think this is more than ethical and moral living. I think he is speaking to him about the righteousness of God, which we all for, fall short of. Now, I'm not sure if, if Paul went ahead and laid out the Roman road for him at this point, but, but I could hear Paul saying something like this. Hey, as far as righteousness and not those of us who are right, moral before God, none of us are. None of us. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, Felix, everybody, you have, I have, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, our prophets have said that our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags before God. So if you were to take the best we've got and we were to offer it to God, God would look at it and he would say, it's nothing more than filthy rags to me. He argued or reasoned with him about righteousness. And then it says he reasoned with him about self-control. I wrote down a few of the different definitions that you'll find if you go and look at a Greek lexicon, a dictionary or so about this word. It says it is self-control is to exercise complete control over one's desires and actions. To make one's heart obedient. And I like this one. To say no to one's own body. Self-control. Now, why do, 
I think that spoke to Felix in such an empowering, effective way. Because if you read Felix's history, if you look at his life and who he was, he was a man of passion and cruelty. He was an ex-slave that somehow had risen to a place of prominence in the Roman Empire. Some believe that he might have even paid and certainly paid for his rise to that position. His brother, who had served the Caesar, was also instrumental in him achieving such things in his life. He was all about political maneuvering. He was all about violence. He married Drusilla. Notice what the passage says here. He married this Jewish lady named Drusilla. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. And according to Josephus, the historian of the Jews, Josephus said that Felix had used this magician, this Cypriot magician, to somehow lure Drusilla away from her husband unto himself. And she was like 16 years old when she married Felix. If you read his life, I mean, if you just keep reading it, you will think that you have turned on days of our lives. Ooh, I may get in trouble by some of y'all still watching that today. I mean, it is just a, when you read it, it's a soap opera. He, 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 he's trying to take this man's wife, his third wife, and he, I mean, he's a man of passion and violence. He, he, he demonstrates this amazing, amazing appeal, this amazing sensation to life and to the sensory uh, elements of life, pleasure. Felix, his name itself. His name itself means pleasure or happiness. So I think this struck a nerve with Felix when Paul reasoned with him about self-control. It would strike a nerve with our culture as well today. Right? For how many today still live with pleasure at the top of of their desire list, of what they want to achieve, happiness, pleasure. Whatever seems right or feels good to me, that's what I'm going to do. Self-control? Well, as long as our self is happy, then I feel pretty controlled. But self-control of saying no to certain desires in our lives or making our hearts obedient, that seems so far away from our cultural experience today. Self-control. And then he reasoned with him on judgment. On the judgment to come. I think what Paul really spoke to him about was the consequence of our sins and our falling short of the glory of God and our lack of self-control. Now, most of you know in this place that I'm not necessarily a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You probably don't think that. That's okay with me. But I do believe in a judgment. And I think we still ought to proclaim the reality of judgment. 
the scripture says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then what? Comes the judgment. Basically just saying there are consequences to our sins. People don't want to hear that today, but there are consequences to our sins. There is a judgment that is coming. In essence, what he says to Felix is, Felix, you might be the judge now, but one day you're going to stand before the judge. And you need to know what life is. You need to know this, Christ. You need to know forgiveness. A few years ago, there was a story about two farmers, one that was a believer, one that was a non-believer. In October, as the harvest came in, the non-believer had done so well in his accounts. He'd done so well. The believer, not so well. So the non-believer came to the believer and he said, look at the harvest I've had. The accounts have been closed. Everything has been, a, been settled. And I have done so much for myself and you have done so little. And it said that this one farmer looked at the believing Christian farmer and he said, you know, when it comes to you and your God, you're nothing but failures. The believer, the Christian farmer, looked at the non-believer and he said, just remember, God doesn't close his accounts in October. There is coming a day. There is coming a day when we will all give account for who we are and what we've done with his son. There is coming a judgment. We need to be reminded of that. And people need to know that there are still consequences to their sins. Well, notice Felix's response. It says, Felix was afraid. Afraid. The word there literally means he was terrified. He was terrified. You find this word in Acts chapter 10, verse 4. Same word. So when Cornelius uh, experiences the angel and the vision of the angel as he speaks to him. And it says that Cornelius is terrified when he sees this angel appear out of the blue. A cousin of this word, a cousin of this word is found in Mark chapter 9 verse 6 where the, you have the event of the transfiguration. Remember the transfiguration where you have this just moment of glorification, an awesome moment. And Peter, it says, is afraid. He is scared. Because they recognize the power and the work of God. They recognize that both Cornelius and Peter and they are terrified in a, in a positive way. In a positive way. I started to entitle this message tonight, The Gospel of Fear. But then I was afraid people would read it and they would try to make, make it something that it's not. But the gospel itself, the good news of Christ, well, it begins with the bad news, Right? The bad news that we have sinned and the bad news that we cannot control ourselves apart from the Holy Spirit in our lives. The bad news that there is a judgment that is coming. There is consequence for our sin. That would be the bad news. And let me say to you, the bad news ought to scare every one of us. It ought to put us in a place of terror before the holy God that we serve. But get this, there is, there is good news. And that's what's pretty awesome. 
is that God did not just deliver bad news to us. God brought to us good news. And the good news is embodied in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. And the good news is he did something about all this for us. Something we could not do for ourselves. But he paid the price. He became sin for us. So that through our faith and trust in him we can have life. But Felix. He couldn't, couldn't, get, couldn't get past the fear. He couldn't get past the conviction that was there. And, and it says that as he trembled, he said to Paul, go away for now. When I have convenient time, I will call for you. He was inquisitive. He was curious. He wanted to know about the gospel. But when he heard the whole gospel and he heard who he was, when he heard what was to be accomplished. He just, he just couldn't make that step of faith. He said, Paul, Paul, you got to, you got to leave me alone. One day maybe I'll call you back and I'll talk to you about this. But Paul, when it's more convenient. Again, there are so many of us that make those kinds of statements. Well, if it's good for us today or if it's convenient for us today or Let me say first of all to you that if God has spoken to you about salvation, do not, do not wait for a convenient season. Today is the day of salvation. Do not put it off. Because what happens? Oh, it's so easy just to put it off and put it off and put it off. And as far as we know from what we see in this scripture... Felix never calls him back. As a matter of fact, he goes back to his old ways. He goes back to his own old thoughts. It says in verse 26, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Maybe he got to thinking about that offering Paul had brought to Jerusalem. And he said, maybe Paul would give me a little of that money and I might release him. Maybe that would be the case. Therefore, he sent him more often. He sent for him more often and conversed with him. But there was no, there was no report by Dr. Luke. That he ever came to faith. Rather in these subsequent meetings. It seems like he was just there to see if Paul was going to offer him money. His heart grew harder and harder. Don't put off salvation. But let me say this to those of us in this place. Many of us who have experienced salvation. May I say. Don't wait for a convenient season in your life. To do what God calls you to do. Even if you're saved. What do you mean? Well, sometimes God speaks to us, those of us who are saved, and he says, this is what you ought to do. And you know what was, God, okay, that's good, but tomorrow I'll make that happen, God. Mm -mm. If God calls you to an act of obedience, you listen, surrender, and obey in that moment. Don't say, God, when it's a convenient, I'll come back to you. You say, God, here I am. I'm surrendered, I'm yielded, whatever you want, that's what I'll do. I will follow you and I will follow you completely. It says for two years, 
for two years, Paul remains in this house arrest, imprisoned. He remains for two years because Felix wants to do the Jews a favor. Instead of responding to the gospel in that moment, notice he turns farther and farther away from God. Christ did not procrastinate when he took up his cross for you. Christ did not say, well, maybe there will be a more convenient season, and then I'll go, and I'll perform this sacrificial service. In the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son, and the Son was perfectly obedient to the Father. He was surrendered to His will. My friends, if Christ would hear the call in such a way and be obedient, then we should respond in immediate obedience to the Father above when He speaks to us. Don't wait for a convenient season. Obey Him. Follow Him. And allow Him to do a work in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we do come before you tonight. And God, we are thankful, first of all, for your work, your salvation in our lives. We'd be nothing without you. We could not serve, we could not respond in such a way if it had not been for you taking initiative in our lives through the Spirit of God to bring us into this relationship. God, thank you. And God, tonight in this place, I pray that you would convict us. Lord, one, that you would just point out to us how we fall short of your righteousness. Lord, I I pray that tonight you would remind us all in this place that we cannot demonstrate self-control outside of your spirit in our lives. God, I pray that you would remind us tonight Lord, of what is to come. And God, for those who are sitting under the sound of my voice right now that have never accepted you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would do it tonight here in this service, that they not wait, but they give their lives totally to you. They would surrender themselves to you and follow you as Lord. And God, for those of us who are saved in this place, Lord, when we recognize what we have been saved from and what we've been saved for, I pray we would run to you and worship you and praise you. And God, I pray that we would continue to be obedient, that when you speak to us, that we would react in decisive, immediate terms to obey you. God, speak to us. Allow us to respond during this moment of invitation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand tonight?